U.S. Justice Department lawsuit targeting Google for anti-competitive practices gets into gear this week. What could this mean for the tech sector around the world? But more importantly, what does it mean for you as an individual? You're listening to the Business Extra podcast coming from The National in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. With me is my co-host, Kelsey Warner, The National's Future Editor. Hi, Kelsey. Hi, Mustafa. Good to be here. A very interesting topic this episode. Uh, it's one that's been rumbling for a while, uh, not just about Google, but all the big technology companies out of the US, like Facebook um, and and Apple, and what it means that they are everywhere. Right. They are this all-consuming power, and increasingly they seem divorced from the real economy. And so what does that mean, our reliance on them? And we did have the little parade of tech giant leaders, Zuckerberg, Bezos, Pichai, and uh, Tim Cook earlier this summer going before the U.S. House of Representatives because they knew antitrust is being investigated. Google is the first ones in the crosshairs, the first to have a case against it. But this actually does sort of open the floodgates for future cases. It says that the U.S. government's serious about figuring this out. What that will look like still remains to be seen. I mean, maybe those listening might be thinking perhaps that this is a, an American thing, right? But in fact, companies in the tech sector, the giant companies, are so dominant. And, sure. and it, it's, a, it's a global dominance. Sure. Unless, honestly, unless you are in China relying on Tencent or Alibaba, you are likely encountering Google, Facebook, just in your everyday life in terms of, you know, you open Google to do a search. That is a nerve center getting you back into your Gmail, getting you into Google Maps, feeding you advertising. You're also generating a huge amount of data for them to then sell further advertising. Just the, it's a self-reinforcing value chain, but all of the value is accrued to these companies. And so the question really is, how do we rebalance the marketplace where, yes, they own the infrastructure, but how is value created for people other than these big tech behemoths? And do we want that? Does it need to be restructured? And so we're starting to have those conversations. Well, it's, it's worth noting that uh, Google and Apple, uh, for example, work together. Uh, Apple uh, gets something like a fifth of its revenue from Google. There's a tie-up between the Google search and, and, and the smartphones. Which is actually at the crux of the lawsuit. So interestingly, the Justice Department has gone after Google's sort of primacy, if you will, and their competitive edge in terms of when you open up Android or you open up your iPhone, Google is the search engine of choice. There's this sense of what other search engine? Competitors are practically punchlines. When you think about Microsoft's Bing, that's who's going to open up a new web browser to access that type of search engine. So the Justice Department lawsuit goes directly at these contracts, not at its advertising marketplace or any other part of the business. So supporters of the lawsuit are saying that this actually could be a one-and-done deal. It's a fairly straightforward thing to prosecute. Google is saying this is unfair because there are other search engines out there and it does not give it unfair competitive advantage. And you mentioned what Google is saying. And, and as you said, the, 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 major, the CEOs of the major tech companies did go to Washington 
Uh, to see. Well, they didn't go to Washington, actually. This was a virtual. Unfortunately, we, we did not get the spectacle of seeing them in Washington, but we did get to see their, uh, we did get to rate their Zoom rooms. <laughs> <laughs> not, not quite as dramatic. Yes, not okay. quite as dramatic, but indeed, they were trotted out before lawmakers. And, and that was their chance to kind of say, well, we do good. You know, we're out there pushing innovation, giving people tools and applications that make their lives easier. And I think nobody's doubting that. Well, it's interesting because some would argue that their hold over the market does squelch innovation and it does reduce, you know, available value in the market for entrepreneurship and true entrepreneurship that does not feed directly into these tech giants. Because a lot of these startups either are getting acquired by big tech or they are then actually customers of big tech. So even if you are creating new solutions, it's likely that you are in some ways beholden to the algorithms of Facebook, Amazon, Apple, and Google. And, and there's also a wider issue, um, maybe morality is the wrong word, but sort of a, a, about the individual and how the individual is being treated by these big companies that actually rely on each person opening themselves up, their lives to, to their tech companies to give them the valuable data. If data is the new oil... I've heard that one before. We've all heard this many times over the last couple of years, but I think we're starting to think about, okay, if it's oil, there's value attached to oil. So who's getting in that exchange of value? Who actually is on the receiving end? And so far, it's been big tech. But I had a conversation this week with Jennifer Sue Scott, who's the new executive chairman of the Commons Project, who has a fairly popular TED Talk that argues we, the consumer, should get paid for our data. Let's listen to that conversation now. Jennifer, I want to start out by asking you where this thesis for consumers should get paid for their data. Where does this come from? Last year, between Google, Facebook, and Tencent, um, their combined revenue uh, in one year is a few hundred billion U.S. dollars. We're all their users, and uh, none of us actually get paid. Nobody got paid. Where's the money from? The money, especially in Google and Facebook's case, what they do is basically every single thing you do, you you interact with certain piece of information or you like a certain picture, you post on certain picture, how long you look at the picture, what kind of uh, information you don't react to, right? What kind of things you search. Every action and inaction is recorded and analyzed in a really scalable way using artificial intelligence. And so what... The reason why the advertising model, um, advertising through Facebook and Google, and it's so valuable is because they really know much better, you know, know us much better than we know ourselves. Um, what kind of information will trigger us? What kind of uh, emotion will be provoked if this kind of uh, news is showing in front of us? And how do we react to everything? So I think for average um, individual, it's not only just... Uh, you are giving away your behavior data. You're also just um, giving your piece of your life, really, to, to those tech platforms, um, especially in Facebook's case, right? Um, you could argue that in Google's case, at least you search something, you, you take some information away. But in Facebook or YouTube's case, um, it's basically just getting you to get deeper and deeper in the rabbit hole, whatever that rabbit hole might be. It could be, 
flat earth to be 5G cost, you know, um, coronavirus and whatever that rabbit hole is, it because that uh, the machine realized, machine learned that you will react to that kind of information. They keep pushing that to you, right? So it's not only just you give away your attention, your time, your personal data, your behavior, deep insights, but also you allow this kind of machinery to manipulate your mind, right? Right. It's all pervasive. It's convenient. It's the means to the end. So it's almost a moot point to try to have these conversations in some ways because it's saying, like, don't go gas up your car to get to work. Yeah, you're right. So I start to realize that actually there is a piece that nobody nobody has really talked about it, which is the economic piece, right? When Ted uh, approached me for, because I was writing about individual data ownership, and uh, when Ted approached me and I thought Ted is a very powerful platform. And, uh, you know, if we talk about the economic value of every individual's data, everybody gets it, right? If, I, if you start to realize that what I'm giving away for free, it's actually worth something. Mm-hmm. But the reason I get paid right now is just because there's no such infrastructure right now. So I give the Ted talk and, you know, now it's a, um, steadily appro- approaching 2 million views. And I hope many people will be able to see um, this message and, and really be careful in terms of what kind of data to give away for free. This transitions us well into, I think, talking about the Commons Project and where the Commons Project sits in your mind to these really entrenched challenges that we're facing right now. If we think about technology and data, it's very much um, completely occupied by large tech uh, corporations. And uh, or by some governments who just want to, you know, use technology for surveillance. So I think, you know, in terms of the existing digital economy model, um, there has to be a new way to recognize that individual's contribution into this data economy. And that's why I had this conclusion that individuals should be paid for their data. But when the Commons Project, quite a few people involved in Commons Project are friends. And, you know, I joined a trustee last year. And um, when I started to look at what Commons Project is doing, it's basically created the third way. It's not a large tech organization, a large tech company looking for IPO exit, you know, invested by some VC fund. It's also not a government agency. It's it's a not-for-profit international organization, but it's tech native. So in many ways, the Commons Project takes a step further. The reason after all the reflection I've been having with myself, the conversation with myself this year, I think I should join uh, this incredible team on this effort. I couldn't even see my argument is based on the existing economic, you know, uh, the financial or commercial model, right? So uh, we need to create more companies that or capabilities to allow individuals to get paid for their, for their data. But what the Commons Project is doing is actually provide the third way, which is um, not a large tech company looking for uh, IPO um, or maximize shareholders' uh-huh. financial return requirements, um, or it's not a government, right? And um, if we think about the international uh, organizations around the world, that most of the transnational organizations uh, came from after World War II kind of the world, right? So, so none of them, all of them are doing, you know, a lot of amazing things around the world. But as our world becomes so digitalized, we actually don't have a transnational organization that's tech native and data native. 
So I want to talk to you about this. I mean, antitrust, the Google lawsuit that came down in the last couple of days and how our personal data might be able to play into this. Could resting some personal data protections back to the consumer or data rights, could that actually take some of the, say, air out of this balloon when it comes to big tech? It feels like it's all about to pop. A lot of people feel like, oh, Google is completely indispensable. I have to use Google every day. My argument is that, no, it's actually not Google is indispensable. A search engine is indispensable. Just Google has such monopoly that becomes synonymous to search engine. You can't even think of alternative. So I do think that this kind of antitrust case will be more and more. We spent past 10 years didn't even ask the question uh, until now. And um, however, I think regulation is uh, not enough. We only rely on regulation. Regulations are retrospective um, by default. Regulators will observe what happened and they decide this is not right. Then they will debate for six months and then come back and say, we have some measures to, uh, to manage this, this situation. By the time, you know, the tech companies already moved on. So I think, you know, regulations are very important to set the floor, but regulation alone is not enough. The challenge in this world is that we know the tech industry have a lot of problems, but a lot of those services that's so crucial are also provided by the tech industry. We don't really have alternative. And um, what about in this world, we can have some alternative. There are some startups that start to provide alternative, but this is also come back to the reason I joined the Commons Project. I think ultimately, um, if the world is so digitalized and we really need to start to think about a lot of those digital services should be um, public service, should be public infrastructure instead of uh, controlled by you know, a few companies. If you think about you know, all the highways in UAE, instead of um, you know, run and owned, um, built by the government, provided as the public infrastructure for the, for the citizens and residents, um, mm-hmm. actually owned by just one or two tycoons. They determine all the terms of you use the road. Um, that wouldn't be right. But in the digital world, this is basically what's happening. We're not talking about one country with one or two. We're talking about the entire world is controlled by one or two companies. Uh, we have seen in the past, I think, you know, the turning point was really 2016 when Cambridge Analytica uh, saga happened. Suddenly the world woke up and realized that, um, hang on a second, you know, this is, uh, this is really not right. Did Cambridge Analytica surprise you when that happened? When the news broke, even though the writing had been on the wall at that point for like six months, that something nefarious was happening. But when we finally got a name and the dots sort of connected, was that surprising? Yes and no. The reason I, th- I think no is that if you, in retrospectively, if you think back how everything is built up, it makes perfect sense, right? This happened. But the reason was also, yes, quite surprising is when you actually put the evidence and very tangible evidence in front of you. Cambridge Analytica just in the daylight committed such kind of mass manipulation, interfering supposedly democratically election. If you have a theory about certain things that are evil in the world, but when you actually see, have a name, have a face, you realize, oh my God, that's actually true. It's, it's also quite surprising in the same way. So I do think that Cambridge Analytica was a kind of wake up point. And that was also when I started to um, write about individual data ownership. And um, I think I started to advocate that Facebook should pay people for their data and Google also should pay for people for their data. 
And end of the day, not only just pay for the data, but also have this pricing power, right? The individual can decide what kind of data I can sell or I don't want to sell. So my price is much higher. We don't have this kind of infrastructure in, in the world or this kind of capability in the world. I think that would be one way to manage the individual data ownership. But with what's available right now, people have no choice. So when you think about a potential commodities market for data, have you actually envisioned this idea of, okay, like you get two cents if you show the store that you've been looking for a red sweater on, you know, like madeball.com. But for 25 cents, you know, you can know what my blood type is. Is it that straightforward? No, I think whenever you want to build a new market that didn't exist before, the first thing it needs to happen is a pricing discovery. You know, how much, how much people are willing to pay for what kind of data, how much people are willing to hold back from that kind of data, right? So, for example, I mentioned this in my TED Talk, that for medical research, you, want, you might want to donate your data. And um, for buying a sweater, e-commerce, for them to recommend better products, I might just exchange my, my search history with a voucher, a discount voucher. But when it comes to manipulating political votes or uh, even fundamental scientific facts, that kind of information, I would completely reject. And I think you know, if you have the power to set the... There are two ways of doing this. One is if you can set the power to reject, um, uh, price, using pricing power to reject this kind of uh, manipulation, that's one, one tool. Another tool is that when we have not-for-profit organizations building fundamental digital infrastructure as public good instead of just want to keep harvesting your data, keep pushing you to prolong your time on site. This is a very, very valuable uh, commodity for Facebook. If you follow Tristan Harris, uh, Tristan Harris used to work for Google and uh, he's been a very active uh, advocate in terms of um, the, the runs of uh, Google and uh, Facebook. So he, he talks about this frequently that with Facebook's AI, that it discovered that whenever there's some very divisive, very extreme, provocative um, political news, um, news feed in, show up in your feed, people will stay, when people are angry, people will stay on the side to argue with each other. That's when they spend most of the time on the side. And that translates into advertising dollar. You think about this year, right? This year we started with the Australia um, fire, um, bushfire, uh, historical unprecedented bushfire. And then we have global pandemic. And then we have incredibly horrifying forest fire in California. Remember that scene in San Francisco, the sky completely turned orange. And I was thinking, oh, my God, in the past a decade or two, the brightest minds in technology in those couple of decades are all dedicated to their collective intelligence into maximizing ad clicks. But if you look around the world, the world is broken. Uh, what are we doing? This comes back to when I, when I start to talk to the folks and the Commons Project, um, I just think is uh, this is the future. This is a truly meaningful journey we are embarking, and uh, we're already making some difference. And uh, couldn't be prouder to working working this team. That was uh, Jen Zhu Scott talking to Kelsey Warner. Uh, Kelsey, thanks so much uh, for being with us this time around. Thank you. Before we finish, here are some of the other stories at thenationalnews.com. Citigroup expects its UAE hub to maintain a five-year growth track despite the pandemic. 
Robust healthcare systems and timely GCC policy actions will avert a deeper crisis, the IMF says. And Aldar signs a deal with ADQ to develop and manage 30 billion dirhams in government projects. That's it for today. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe or leave a review. You can email us at malrawi at All that remains is to thank our production team, Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan, and you all for listening. Please do join us again next time.